welcome to today's podcast. Today, we're talking about why care navigation programs are valuable for delivering a great patient experience and delivering lower costs for employers. This program is brought to you by the Healthcare Administrators Association, HCAA. For over 40 years, HCAA has supported third-party administrators and the self-insured employer industry through educational opportunities from leading industry experts. For information on joining HCAA, please visit our website at caa.org. I'm your host, Ramesh Kumar, and I'm on a mission to bring value to the healthcare industry through improved transparency. And my goal from this podcast is to give you one aha moment that you can implement in your business, whether you are a TPA, broker, or an employer. In my day job, I run a company called Zaki Point Health that helps self-insured employers and their employees find meaning from their healthcare data. Please like or share this podcast on your favorite podcasting tool so we can bring together a community of like-minded professionals. Before we begin, we would like to bring you a word from our sponsor, MedWatch. MedWatch, one of the most trusted and respected population health management and medical cost containment companies in the industry, was founded in 1988 with the reinsurance industry to provide effective solutions combined with meaningful and informative reporting. URAC accredited utilization case and disease management are administered with a commitment to partnership and quality, demonstrated daily by a dedicated staff of clinicians, technicians, and executives. So today we have Michelle Bounce, Chief Operating Officer of JP Farley, a forward-looking TPA, to talk about why care navigation programs are valuable for a good member experience and for reducing healthcare costs for employers. Michelle had a chilling experience with our healthcare system that has shaped her desire to improve healthcare for all. And the discussion about why care navigation is key to delivering this great member experience and lower costs for employers, it really has helped shape her thinking. In this episode, you will have the following questions answered. When we talk about care navigation, concierge service or programs like that, how do these actually deliver a great member experience and care management? How do we take care of the patients using these new models of care navigation from a business sense? How do we charge for it? Where does this go? What's the impact of it? And then we are also going to share with you a case study with actual numbers of high quality places of care and the kind of money you can save when members go to those places. So let's dig into it. Hi, Michelle. I'm super excited to have you on our podcast today. I've known you for some time. You've done some incredible work growing JP Farley, and you've been in the industry. So super excited to get your insights on the topic, which will be broadly around care navigation. However, I know you have a very, very personal story. If you are comfortable sharing that, it could be really helpful for our listeners. Do you mind maybe introducing yourself and telling your personal journey? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm Michelle Bounce, and I am the CEO of JP Farley. But I think what's interesting is what got me excited or passionate about this industry, what has brought me into it. And it took me a long time to share my story with even our inside company. And this is the first time I'm sharing it publicly. But I think it's important because I think we have to remember that there is a human being on the other side of our transactions that is 
impacted in a variety of ways. Um, What I've learned from my story is that everybody I know has got their own. And so it's even more impactful when you realize that you're not alone. So for me, my journey started about 17 years ago. I spent a couple of years trying to get pregnant. I was happily married at the time and thought, well, it's time to have kids. You know, I'm in my 20s and it took me a while to get pregnant. We went through the journey very excited when it finally happened. And I got to five months and we were thrilled. You know, we are going to our ultrasound to find out the sex of the baby. And we get to the ultrasound and the technicians doing it and everybody's very excited. You know, it's a big moment. And she tells me, you guys are having a boy. And my, he's my ex-husband now, but that'll come later. We started celebrating, of course, you know, we're having a boy, our first baby, very, very excited. And all of a sudden she says, I'm going to leave the room and go get the doctor. And she does. And the doctor comes back in with her and immediately asks me to get up from the table. And they take me to what I call the padded room now, which is basically a room with couches and flowers and Uh, They sit me down and and explain to me that my baby has anencephaly and will not survive and that the best thing for my body to do and and likely for the baby is to eliminate the pregnancy now. I'm obviously shaken up over it and crying and and the doctor looks at me very straightforward and is like, you're young, You you can get pregnant again. Like he doesn't understand why I'm so impacted by this. And so we leave and go home and they have me come back to the clinic a couple of days later. The procedure is that they walk you down a hall, put you in a room and fill your cervix with a seaweed kind of mixture. It's basically a dried out seaweed. And the seaweed is meant to absorb all of the fluid in your cervix and start to abort the pregnancy. They do this in a, a quick 15 minute procedure with a physician I've never met before. And they send you home. And I remember so clearly being home that evening and I was curled up in a ball on the couch and I just screamed at the top of my lungs. It was, it was horrifying to go home and feel like I'm losing my child right now that I wanted so badly. And no nurses called, no doctor called, no therapist called, you know, you just, you really feel like you're on an island. Well, it gets even better because the next morning you go into the hospital they walk you down the hallway and you know that you're going to do a DNC, which is the removal of what's left of your child. And they walked me into the maternity ward. I I remember so clearly walking in and feeling shock because there is a woman who's very pregnant in labor, walking the halls with her husband. And I am walking in to lose my child. And it, it felt so impersonal. It felt so it was so, it was a very traumatic moment to walk in there and go through that. Um, And then you hear the lullaby playing while they're getting you ready for your surgery of every time a baby's born. And and there's so much excitement and happiness going on around you. And it just, it's a very cold moment when, when you're going through the opposite. I went through the experience and left, went home and the insurance called me a few days later, the care managers called me and said, uh, yeah, how's it going? Are you bleeding? Is anything going on? Like, again, very clinical. And I'm I'm trying to explain that physically, I guess I'm fine, right? But mentally, I'm maybe not so okay. And they're not equipped to deal with that. So they're very interested in clinically, how are you doing? Are you bleeding? Is any of this happening? Is any of that happening? And 
I explained that it, it was really hard to go to the maternity ward and their response is, well, that's where they have the equipment. And when I got through this experience, I ended up deciding never to have children, which resulted in a divorce because my ex-husband really wanted children. It was a life-changing experience and everything works out for the reasons that it's supposed to, but I walked away from it realizing how impactful these experiences can be for people. When I I came into this industry about a year after that experience, it, it had the same feeling here of why are we so detached from the human being? Why have we forgotten? How have we forgotten that no matter how small or big we think it is, that the experiences that people are having when they're interfacing with us or interfacing with the healthcare system in general, they really are life-changing in so many ways. For me, it was the decision to not have children and a divorce and all sorts of other things. But for others, it could be picking the wrong physician and not being mobile for the rest of their lives. It could be something small, like I've got a bunch of balanced bills or what we perceive to be small. We treat it in a very factual manner. Well, it's just a balanced bill. Just ignore this or do this or do that. And meanwhile, it could cause financial ruin for somebody. It could impact their ability to buy a house or put them in debt or or create enough stress that bad things can happen in their lives. I found it very upsetting, very depressing that in our industry and in the healthcare industry and in all of our combined efforts, it has become very much a large business and not about the human being in the interaction anymore. We have completely Mm. forgotten it very sorry to hear obviously this experience and I when I first heard it traumatic and I think what was intriguing as well as you describe it again is it was obviously a very personal Mm -hmm. journey and everyone has that personal journey with healthcare but we are not able to really personalize it for people how has it shaped your kind of thinking on what you're trying to do Mm-hmm. at J.P. Farley and how it's shaped your thinking about our healthcare system? I mean, there are obviously things that in our industry we can't impact, but there are so many that we can and we've forgotten about. One of those places is the type of service that we provide. Rehiring people for empathy. Are we looking for people that really want to connect? And it's hard to connect over the phone, but this is a time when people are at their most vulnerable and their most trusting. Right. And that connection is so vital to what they're going through right now. So how are we hiring? Let's start there. How are we picking up the phone, not having a phone tree and having a person answer the phone in a timely manner, not 15, 20 minutes from now is important. Making sure that the person who answers the phone is not transferring them, is not pushing them around. So there are so many things that what we call advocates instead of customer service can do down to calling the providers and doing LOAs down to making outbound phone calls. 30% of our phone calls now are outbound calls. And that has made a huge difference for our members. When you tell somebody even something as simple as a colonoscopy that was billed as a polyp, well, we processed it towards your deductible because they build it as a polyp. You'll have to fix that. Our members don't understand how to fix that. They don't know who to call or what to do. And I've seen people try to do that. My neighbor went through that on his own and I was trying to help walk him through it, you know, and over a year later, he was still meeting me outside going, can you believe I'm still dealing with this? So the simple fact that we can provide enough empathy and attach ourselves enough or connect enough to say, 
you don't do this for a living. Let me make that phone call for you is a huge step forward for the person on the phone. I mean, now we have care managers and we have data and there are so many places where we can connect. We're not clinicians. We have come to a place where we're kind of hoarding data and we're holding data and where can it be shared and how can it be shared and when should it be shared? There is so much that we can share when we're partnering with physicians or clinicians and nurses and DPCs that we need to find those places. We need to find those partnerships and we need to find those places where we can connect the dots for people, where we can say, I have the data. How can you as a clinician make it useful, purposeful, helpful, and have value for the human being involved? And one of those places that we found is providers, for example, just looking for a member calls in and says, hey, I'm going to have surgery. And we give them an incentive to call us first We look up quality for them and say, hey, this is a quality hospital, quality physician for the type of surgeon that you need. And if you go there, we'll waive your deductible and coinsurance because we want to make sure they have quality when they're going. Do they understand that? So let's talk about the patient experience when they are encountering healthcare system or your Mm -hmm. um, teens. What information, what education are you trying to provide and what is actually having And what are they understanding from this? Yeah. So one of the first things that we do is provide education, obviously, but our education is not focused on cost. We know that the cost will come, the the cost reduction will come with the quality, right? And this is something that we know in our industry. So you don't have to have the conversation around cost. People get very offended humans get very offended when you're talking about cost and they're talking about a life-changing event, right? Nobody wants to hear it. You have to change the conversation to quality and the conversation should change to quality. But let's think about what our membership has access to. Google. Google is not telling them anything about the quality standards of a physician or hospital. It is really hard for them to determine how to find quality. We have access to this data. We should use it both for the benefit of the employers that we're serving, but the humans that we're serving as well. If they have a better outcome, it costs the plan less money, but you just impacted a life in a positive way. And all you have to do is look up a quality provider. Maybe take a procedure or a code. Maybe give me some texture on high quality and what's been the cost differential so that TPAs and brokers Mm -hmm. and employers can also put that into context. So I've actually done a recent case study on a few of ours that we have worked on. So you look at cervical spinal fusion. Without the guidance to a quality physician, a member went and had spinal fusion. We did pre-op and post-op for that member and did a cost analysis. And the cost of spinal fusion for a member who did not shop quality was $255,367. The cost for a member who did shop quality, who called us ahead of time, was $132,935. So almost half the cost. But the more important thing when you're looking at that spinal fusion is when you're looking at the quality standards of the one that chose to use us versus the one that didn't. Now, if we looked at both the hospital quality and the provider quality, the surgeon's quality. The hospital quality for our cheaper procedure was in the 98th percentile, 98.12. The hospital quality for the member who did not use navigation, who did not 
ask for quality was 64 in the 64th percentile. The physician, now think about this. This is a cervical spinal fusion. This is a big procedure. This is a procedure that could be life-changing, easily life-changing. Our physician quality, the physician that we we sent the person to had a quality score in the 90.92. So in the 90th percentile, the physician score for that member that didn't was 24.35. So not only did the spinal fusion for that member that didn't choose to use an advocate to help them cost the plan twice as much, but it put the human being at what would be considered an incredible risk, right? And they had no idea that they were taking a risk, no idea whatsoever. And they would have no way of finding this information. You'll get the same thing with the knee replacement and the knee replacement cost was $38,990 for the member that used our our quality comparison. And the score of our hospital was 99.68. The knee surgery for a member who didn't use the quality comparison was 108.745, almost three times the cost. The hospital score on that one, 15.7. Again, it's such a small thing. We think of it as, oh, we have access to this information. It's not a big deal. And who's going to call us? If you can engage the member through education or even nurses or clinicians and explain to them that we're talking about quality, we're not the insurance company trying to save on cost. We don't have to have that conversation. We know it'll happen. Make it about the human, make it about the experience, because at the end of the day, that's what it should be about. Everything else is going to follow. And we as an industry have to remember that if you do the right thing, the cost will follow. Let's just do the right thing. And to me, that's educating the member one step in that. Educate them, get them to the highest quality provider we can get them to so that they can walk again. They can support their family again. They can have children in the future, whatever it might be. But we have the ability to have that impact. And we have an obligation to humans to try to. You're very passionate about quality care. Do patients in those stressful situations, are they understanding this 15% to 45% to 98%? Like, what are these conversations like in your, with the nurse teams or CSR teams? So it really depends on the patient and it depends on how care management is set up for the client. For our patients where they don't go to the care managers, they go to our advocate and most TPAs have this, right? It's right out of Deerwalk, use the quality tool. And on one page, you could put a nice comparison together for a person on multiple physicians, multiple hospitals, and they still have choice. You're just simply giving them quality ratings and letting them make the choice. And you tell them, if you choose to go to the highest quality, we can waive deductible and coinsurance. We can help you schedule. We can do whatever you need us to do to facilitate. But again, you're having the the conversation around quality. On the same note, we are the quote unquote insurance company in their minds, and there is a lack of trust there. So it does help to get clinicians and nurses and care managers involved. If we can get the nurses involved and they can help steer the patient then that is always helpful. It's a clinician and the member, the the human is going to trust them at a higher level than they would somebody from the administrative office, right? And what we found interesting about that is that 
our nurses and our physicians want to do this. They want to help the members. They want to make sure they're getting better care, but they don't have the data to do it. They don't have the information early enough. And one of the things that I hear over and over and over again is we don't know until the pre-cert happens. This is another place where we can change. We know that the pre-cert is not going to happen for 48, 36 hours before procedure. And there is absolutely no hope of changing behavior at that point. Let's be real. If somebody scheduled for a knee replacement in 36 hours, I am not getting them to change hospitals and physicians, no matter what I say. They're ready, right? But there are so many things that we can do with the data that we have that would help us get further ahead. I mean, months ahead, in some instances, years ahead. So you look at our data and you say, how easy is it for any of the TPAs that are hearing this to say, I'm going to look for all patients that are getting physical therapy, shoulder, knee, back, whatever it might be. I'm going to look for all patients that have had steroid injections or hyaluronic injections. And I can report these proactively to an orthopedic surgery center of high quality or to our nurses or to a DPC. There are things that we can do right then that allow us to get ahead of an actual major event and steer the person toward quality before they're at a surgical procedure, right? Um, And a lot of times that can help avoid a surgical procedure. And then you think on the other end, what about things like ER? We have just completely ignored this. We complain about how frequently people go to the ER, right? That's one of the things that all TPAs report on. You have frequent flyers and we've got to increase the ER copay, but let's think about this. What if you could report to a nurse or a DPC or a PCP, that your member went to the ER. They call us for benefits. The ER comes in now with a wheeled cart, with a credit card machine to collect your copay or deductible. They know, they call the insurance, they want to know what you owe, and they want to collect it right then. We get the phone call. We get it. We know you went to the emergency room today or last night. What if you created a trigger or a notification to a clinician that said, hey, we have a patient that went to the ER. What if you followed up with that patient the next day or the following day? Because you know what happens? People go to the ER. The ER is is meant to make sure they're not dying and then send them home. And you almost always go home from the emergency room with a piece of paper that says, please follow up with a physician. Your condition was X, Y, and Z. How many people don't follow up? How could we change a person's life if they did follow up, right? So there are so many places where I see we are so far behind, but we've got so much opportunity to positively impact humans that just touching even on a couple of these as an administrator is going to touch a lot of lives. So I'm going to push you a little bit. This is really helpful. So there are two big stakeholders. You described the member being able to communicate, tell them proactively, you've got the DPC side, the PCP or telemedicine or whoever, clinician side of things. Let's take the member side. If there's a TPA or broker out there listening or even employer, if they can just nail these five alerts, what would those be? I would say joints is a nice, easy, low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. Um, Emergency rooms are also a nice, easy, low-hanging fruit. And I think looking at people with multiple comorbidities, with multiple conditions or chronic conditions is important. The other place that I see that you can be very impactful with 
is gastrointestinal issues, specifically like IBS, IBD. These are big claims and they're chronic claims and they happen in the ER and inpatient. And these things happen year after year. You can be very impactful by just getting maintenance involved. And so I think if we just focus on a few areas and say, I'm always going to look at my claims, even if you don't have a system that will say, I can create an automatic trigger, you could do a weekly report or even a monthly report would be better than Mm -hmm. what we're doing now Mm -hmm. and say, I'm going to act on just a few instances. And those things to me are the greatest starting position. Let's start somewhere. That's fantastic. And so the other stakeholders you talked about, we should be sharing this data with the clinicians, PCPs. Maybe give me a sense of what kind of data you are providing what kind of data you would ideally like to be able to push and provide? And what has been the response from DPC, PCPs towards that information that you're providing? Yes. So they actually get really excited about this. And it depends on which kind of provider you're working with. And they'll help you decide what information they can use. But this is a whole new world for most of these physicians. They want to do the right thing. And if you think about the world that they're in right now, they are pushed to see patient after patient after patient. And you go into the doctor and he's literally running from one room to the other room. And there's no time in between for him to breathe and understand who he's seeing. So we have what I call the magic three pager, right? It's basically a three page summary of the patient. And we can, if we're working with a DPC, for example, we can provide him We have a list of all of our patients that are going there on a given day, and we could provide him with this three-pager. And it's not a bunch of words, it's charts. And so in little graphs, while he's walking down the hall, he can understand the history, the medication, and what's going on with that patient really, really quickly, right? And so he walks in and he feels like he's got a more comprehensive sense of who that patient is. He's not relearning them. We've all walked into the physician's office. You talk to the physician's assistant when you go in, And they ask you this group of questions. Your physician walks in 10 minutes later and asks you the same exact questions. And so that communication, whatever we can do to make that physician's life easier when he is walking from one room to the next is great information. The other thing that we have found is that those alerts, especially with like orthopedic and specialty physicians, the specialists love the alerts. So can you tell me when you get a call for anything orthopedic? Can you tell me who's got physical therapy or or did you get a pre-cert for physical therapy? Can you help my office schedule for people? Can you help the communication? You know, they're not staffed to scrub data. You can't just send them over a bunch of data and say, here, go through this and figure it out and call people. This isn't what they're staffed for. They need us to help facilitate that. We need to scrub the data, which is not hard for us to do. We need to find those people that we may have an impact on, and we need to figure out how to do outreach, whether it's via our advocates, via our care managers, or via a web portal where we can schedule people. There are so many different ways to skin this cat. We just have to be a little bit creative and willing to take a step out there. Oh, this is fantastic. So as you describe these huge impactful things, what is a challenge that you experience in kind of this transforming to this new world? So there are a few challenges. The biggest challenge is really finding independent physicians, often hospital systems. The hospital systems have really grown to a place where 
it makes it much harder, right? You walk in and you don't get a prescription anymore. You get sent down the hallway. So that front end education, that education with the member, that incentivizing the member enough to make them want to reach out to us beforehand is super important. And it typically takes us a good year and a half, two years to get some good traction around this. You need a couple good stories from people that work there. And that's what works. It's not the employee meetings. You need to impact one person. And that one person is going to tell the story to everybody that will listen. And if you impact them negatively, you know, they're going to tell the story. You're talking about the impacting that individual employee in the company so that they can tell that story. Yes. Wow. It's really grassroots. It works, though. That's the most effective way. They're not, again, we're perceived as the insurance company. They don't want to hear what we're telling them to do. But when somebody has a positive experience, that goes off like wildfire. So I think about this office here. We put in Teladoc about five or six years ago, and it was so funny because one person called and they're like, oh, my God, they answered the phone in like two minutes. And I, I talked to a doctor and I got an antibiotic. It was so cool. And then all of a sudden our teledoc utilization is like 50 percent the next month. Right. But nobody used it for like a whole year. It was so funny. You need that one good story. You need that one impact. And I go home and I wake up feeling really good about what I do. That's the great side about it. But that person was impacted in a way that I can't even explain. That has beauty in it. That's what we need to be doing. And then it will spread. So you have to be patient and you have to stick to it and you have to be consistent. You can't do it sometimes. If you say you're going to help people, if you say you're going to direct people, if you say you're going to provide incentives, do it and do it timely because they will just as quickly get frustrated with the process. They are already going through a stressful event. We do not want to create more stress for them. This is fantastic. So in terms of if you had to take a quick step back here, you talked about this whole care navigation advocacy, you talked about the data. If you could summarize or highlight what data elements become critical for Mm -hmm. running a very effective care navigation program. So the data elements that become critical are simply the things that we can find in our claim file, right? I mean, you don't need much else. So if you can run a claim report with diagnostic codes, procedure codes, you are good to go. And then now I can use a pivot table or a filter. I just created magic. I mean, it's crazy. So for me, the data is easy, right? We all know what data we have access to, and and that's the easy part. It's really scrubbing the data and having the right people to interface with that becomes impactful. We have all of the data. We have a more comprehensive view typically than a physician or a hospital does. When you think about them, they're using different EMR systems and some of the care might be disjointed. And I'm going to this hospital for one thing and this hospital for another. Well, I have claims for all of them. I have claims and I have prescriptions and I can piece this all together really quickly and get a much fuller picture of what's going on with the member, but I'm not a clinician. So what am I doing with it? What value can I have with it? Well, the value is providing that comprehensive view of the patient to a clinician. And why are we not handing it to them on a silver platter? So the data elements can be very different depending on what specialty you're working with, but Care management, as it's been 
my opinion on it, it won't be very popular, is that we've gotten lazy. We, we get involved at the pre-cert level. We aren't very, very proactive, and we've really turned it into a business of stop-loss renewal, right? We only care about what's going on when we're up for renewal, and I've got to evaluate what's going on with my large claimants, and I'm not evaluating them to impact them in a positive way. I'm evaluating them because I've got to negotiate my stop-loss renewal, but What if we could impact them before they became a large claimant? And are we going to make large claimants go away? Absolutely not. They're going to exist. But we can reduce the cost and we can improve people's lives. And that has value. Let's turn care management on its head as an industry and say, we need to insist that you get further ahead of it. And because we're insisting that, we understand as an industry that we have to get further ahead of it, that we have to provide you with scrub data or triggers or a list of patients and risk scores that are going to be valuable for you to be able to do that without data mining. And we all have the ability to do that. It's just not being done right now. So this model, if you had to put some view on the value of the impact to the employer so you know care navigation using quality scores and being able to provide these triggers to the physicians and to the member give me a sense are we talking savings of 10 percent, 5 percent, 50 dollars ppm just so that our listeners can oh okay this is where we, this is headed yeah so i think if you stay on it for a few years you could easily save 20 30 percent a particular employer in our area, 47 lives big. They've been with us for about 10 years now. Great employer, but not a large employer. And the drug for muscular dystrophy was coming out. And we had a member, a child that had muscular dystrophy. And we knew this drug was coming out because we all get the alerts via email. And we knew it was expensive. We also knew that the chances were it was going to hit this plan. It's a small employer. Now, let's be honest. We have a million dollar a year drug that is going to repeat year after year. They're not getting insurance next year. There's no way. They're not getting fully insured. They're not going to be able to self-fund. We're going to be dealing with a laser. And a 47 employee life employer cannot afford a million dollars for one person every year. It just doesn't work that way. So using the data that we had, we were able to locate, understand the members' needs, understand that they may or may not be eligible for this and start to communicate with them before the drug was prescribed, before the injection was needed, before anything happened. And because of that, we were actually able to outsource that drug through an assistance program without doing an exclusion that allowed the member to fill the drug outside of the plan and save the plan over a million dollars a year for at least three years. That kept that employer in business with a health plan. So, I mean, to, to put a monetary value on it, it can be different for every plan, but it can also be the thing that keeps an employer's health plan in existence. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is huge. Whether it's a 47 employee or 500 employee, you know, they all feel this challenge, the burden, and they want to take care of their employees. So if you're able to find a mechanism, this is great. So the data and proactivity overall mm-hmm. huge impact for that employer nice nice work there if our tpa wants to take this path or benefit consultant where they want to put these care navigation approach what are the three or four steps they could take 
The first thing that I think that they need to do is evaluate their data and understand how they can easily access low-hanging fruit. What do they want to target first? Because if you try to target everything, you're going to get distracted and you lose focus and you will trip. Our processes, uh, Jim likes to say this, and I still repeat it to this day, our industry is a mile long and an inch deep. And it's true. We have a thousand different processes. None of them are horribly complex, but we've got a thousand of them happening at any moment. Target your first couple experiences until you become really good at them. So is your focus orthopedic? Is your focus chronic disease? Is your focus gastrointestinal disease? I don't care what it is. Pick a focus. Find those data elements in your data. Easily pull them out, extract them, and then find a human being, an advocate, a very empathetic person, and be willing to invest in that, right? Whether it's internal or external, we invested internally and said, here is the information, connect with this person and help them find the quality that they need. And this person can do research, they can find quality, they can connect with members, they can be empathetic to their needs. And honestly, the best person for this is a clinician, is a nurse. They understand the medical side of it, they understand the quality side of it, and they understand the need for empathy. Then really focusing in on how to incentivize people to use that benefit when it's available, but also to make sure that your processes are in place to incentivize correctly the first time. So much of what I've seen is let me put in an HRA plan and we're going to do a reimbursement and the reimbursement takes a long period of time to happen or it doesn't happen at all or somebody forgets to do it. That is the quickest way to break this from the start. You can't build that trust back up again. It's really, really hard to do. So what I would tell people is don't start too broadly. Don't bite off a giant chunk of the apple scope in on one thing and say, this is going to be my focus and get really good at it and expand from there. So prioritize whether it's particular procedures, cost drivers, develop a game plan, how you're going to be, how you're going to communicate proactively, how you're going to develop a playbook around it. Mm -hmm. What tools, technologies are important in kind of making this transformation? I mean, quite frankly, email, (laughs) any of our claim systems, And a person that understands the data, this isn't hard, right? And that's what's so amazing to me that we're not doing it. We all have the tools readily available. It doesn't take massive amounts of technology. DeerWalk's helpful, but we all have analytics tools as well. So whether it's DeerWalk or another one, they're available. We use them. We all use them. That's really, really helpful to find quality and we use it daily. So all the basics that we all already have. One last question maybe two last questions. One is, you know, I think TPAs also struggle to charge for this. They do all this hard work. This is amazing. This really is a lot of work. How do you charge for that? How do you go out and capture that value? I think for us, at least, and this is not going to be the popular answer, so I'll I'll give you a secondary answer. Um, For us, this is an obligation. And if we do it and we do it the right way and we're focused on doing the right thing, we're going to keep a client for a long time and the investment is well worth it. For many, I think they're going to have a hard time making that initial investment and saying we're not going to charge for it. Think in terms of 
case management fees, something in that hourly range, or even think in terms of percentage of savings. And it doesn't have to be a big percentage of savings. So there are methodologies that you can do to allow yourself to be compensated for the time you're going to spend doing this. Those are already out there and accepted. So it won't be difficult for your clients to accept. Yeah. So I guess commit to it, go down this path. And over a course of time, you will be able to find a way to charge for it. You will absolutely easily be able to find a way to charge for it. And showing the ROI on these things is so simple. I mean, think about the million dollar case I just told you about, or even the spinal fusion or knee replacement, the ROI on this is super easy for us to prove. So to show a client, hey, we saved you a half a million dollars last year, a million dollars last year, we're going to charge an hourly fee only when we do the service, or we're going to charge a percentage of savings for what we save. I'm not saying no to that. Go for it. Keep saving me money. Keep helping my humans. If people want to get in touch with you, learn more about what you're doing, how you're doing this, maybe even just take your advice, how can they reach out to you? My email is michelleb with two L's at jpfarley.com or just go on to our website and you can find us at jpfarley.com. I truly believe that I've got an entire team of people who are just as passionate about this as I am. So you don't have to talk to me. Hopefully you could talk to anybody here and get the same answer or the same level of excitement. But I have typically a little bit more caffeine than the rest of them do. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I can, I can see it. I can feel it even on the Zoom call. Your passion for this, obviously your personal commitment to changing the way care is delivered and is personal. And I think we need certainly people like you also to inspire others on the teams. Thank you for what you're doing and thank you for taking the time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I hope that it impacts people in some way. And I would like to thank MedWatch, our sponsor for this show. Please join us again for another podcast in this series brought to you by HCAA's Voices of Self-Funding. Please like and share so we can build a community of like-minded people. And tell us about topics that we should bring to you next. Please watch your email for updates on upcoming guests. I'm your host, Ramesh Kumar of Saki Point Health.